A Brief History of the Color Blue Written by Janko Tsvetkov and narrated by Emiliano Gion For most of history, the color blue has been an exuberant luxury, reserved for the filthy rich. This is a story about how alchemy and science brought it to the blue-color masses. The first blue rose I ever saw was growing clandestinely in a small garden in the City of Arts and Sciences, a futuristic architectural complex designed by the world-renowned architect Santiago Calatrava in his hometown of Valencia. Right across the sprawling rice fields that provide the main ingredient for the Spanish paella. Spain is a land of stark contrasts that somehow manage to complement each other. The mind-bending geometry of Calatrava's buildings was interlaced with meandering streams and gardens, some of them manicured, others intentionally left to the whims of nature. Although small, the Rose Garden, located near the Opera House, hosted an impressive variety of colorful cultivars. Between the clusters of tall bushes, there were smaller patches with simpler five-petal blossoms, a reminder of what roses looked like in the wild before humanity adopted them as emotional currency. While phytoeugenics gradually turned the humble plants into Baroque masterpieces, their color palette remained limited. Breeders had been trying to expand it for ages, but one particular cultivar remained out of reach, the Blue Rose. In 1840, horticultural societies in Britain and Belgium offered half a million francs to anyone who could produce one. There were no winners. In the early 1990s, the race was revived by an emerging technology. Genetic Engineering A Japanese beverage conglomerate called Suntory joined forces with Floragene, an Australian biotechnological company that had experimented with petunias and successfully isolated a gene responsible for their blue pigment, delphinidin. They introduced this gene into a rose using a bacterium naturally present in the soil, but the blossoms stubbornly refused to change color. Further experiments with genes from gentians, butterfly peas, and blue wings were equally disappointing. But after six years of trial and error, the scientists made a breakthrough. A gene from the common pansy finally produced the first notable traces of blue pigment. A decade of incremental improvements followed before the first blue roses appeared on the market. There was one minor problem. Their real color was lavender. This, the scientists explained, wasn't a scam. Because of differences in the natural acidity between the two species, when transferred into a rose, the deep blue pigment of the pansy acquired a delicate lilac tint. The rose was chemically blue, and given the almost two decades of struggle and more than $40 million spent on the project, the marketing division at Suntory christened the cultivar Applause, a name that only someone with a heart of stone would find presumptuous. If that's any consolation, making things blue has been a pain in the ass ever since the dawn of civilization. There are, surprisingly, few genuinely blue things on Earth. The color of the sky is among the biggest fakes.
It's a consequence of the uneven scattering of sunlight, whose original color is white. When the same sunlight passes through water, its warmer wavelengths are absorbed more efficiently, leading to a similar result. A small volume of water in a glass might look transparent, but once you pour enough of it in a pool, it inadvertently turns blue. Things get even trickier with eye color in humans. Brown eyes are a result of the naturally present pigment melanin. Blue and green eyes, however, are optical illusions caused by the reflections of incoming light by microscopic structures in the iris. Nature employs the same deception with peacock feathers. Chemically, they are uniformly brown. The trickery was first examined in 1665 by natural philosopher Robert Hooke in his book Micrographia. These colors, he wrote, arise immediately from the refractions of the light. I found by this that water wetting these colored parts destroyed their colors, which seemed to proceed from the alteration of the reflection and refraction. The list goes on. The gorgeous feathers of the kingfisher, fake. The ultramarine wings of the morpho butterfly, fake. The electric blue of the African marbleberry, an ingenious hoax, by product of microscopic structures hidden beneath a smooth cuticle that reflects light like a mirror. Of all living things, only rare butterfly species like the South American Nesea ubrinus have naturally evolved blue pigmentation. Just like the natural world, prehistoric human art was dominated by an earthy palette of yellows, ochres, and reds until early humans stumbled upon a semi-precious stone consisting of calcite, a ubiquitous mineral, pyrite, iron sulfide, commonly known as fool's gold, and lazarite, a feldspathoid with an intense blue color. We don't know when exactly it happened. Back then, there was neither internet nor Instagram, but current archaeological data suggests it was at least as early as 4500 BC. The encounter was definitely serendipitous. Until the Industrial Revolution, the stone was consistently mined only in the Koksha River Valley, locked between the inhospitable mountains of Badakhshan, a region in northeastern Afghanistan. Because of the harsh climate and the steep mountain roads, transportation was dangerous and mining even more so. Accidents would appear to have been frequent wrote Scottish explorer John Wood, who visited Badakhshan in 1837. One place in the mine is named after some unhappy sufferers who were crushed by the falling roof. The extraction process, on the other hand, was relatively simple. Under the spot to be quarried, a fire is kindled, wrote Wood, and its flame, fed by dry furs, is made to flicker over the surface. When the rock has become sufficiently soft, it is beaten with hammers and flake after flake knocked off until the stone of which they are in search is discovered. While demand significantly outstripped supply, the stones from the Badakhshan mines reached all corners of the ancient world. The Babylonians and Assyrians used them in jewelry, the Sumerians to craft the eyes of their sculptures, like the alabaster statue of the Ibail, dating from 2400 BC. The most famous ancient artwork that incorporates them 
is the funeral mask of Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun, made in 1323 BC. Through ancient Egypt, the blue stone reached the Greco-Roman world, where it received its current name, Lapis Lazuli. Its rarity sometimes led to misunderstandings. The author of the most authoritative ancient lapidary, Theophrastus, confused it with sapphire. The complexity of its trade made lapis lazuli expensive. There is even evidence that supplies dried out during the 2nd and 3rd Egyptian dynasties, 28 to 2600 BC, most likely because of shifting political conditions. The Egyptians invented a variety of cheaper substitutes like faience and colored glass made with cobalt ore. However, nothing could rival the original. Lapis lazuli had another fundamental disadvantage. Pharaohs could use it for the decoration of their funeral masks, but they couldn't paint their palace walls with it. Because of its heterogeneous mineral structure, lapis lazuli lost its color when it was ground to a powder, resulting in a pale grayish pigment. The appetite for blue, however, proved so enormous that during the 4th dynasty, around 3250 BC, the Egyptians found a way to artificially produce an extremely rare blue mineral, coprorivite, by mixing calcium, copper, silica, and potash. The resulting pigment became known as Egyptian blue. Two millennia and a half later, during the Zhou dynasty, the Chinese would invent a similar substance, Han blue, using barium instead of calcium. There's an ongoing debate whether they borrowed their recipe from Egypt. Egyptian blue was widely used as a lapis lazuli alternative in the West until the technology was lost at the end of the Roman period, when, for reasons unknown, blue things went out of fashion. But just as the Christian world enthusiastically embraced the excruciating monotony of the Dark Ages, their more enlightened contemporaries from the Bamiyan Valley of central Afghanistan were working hard to surpass the ingenuity of the ancient Egyptians. In the 6th century AD, Afghanistan was inhabited by the Greco-Buddhist Gandhara civilization, a curious remnant from the cultural fusion brought by the armies of Alexander the Great centuries earlier. Among its most iconic artworks were two giant statues of Gautama Buddha, so masterfully carved in the sandstone cliffs that in 2001, the Taliban's had to use a combination of explosives and anti-aircraft guns to destroy them. A more delicate set of artworks, hidden in the caves near the statues, escaped the wrath of the fundamentalists. Among them are the first known oil paintings. The artists who created them used a blue pigment made from lapis lazuli. 300 years later, Venetian traders brought the Bamian invention to Europe, just as Virgin Mary completed her transformation from a peasant wife to a glamorous queen. Her trademark blue robe was initially painted with a pigment made from the mineral azurite. But there was a downside. Its intense blue color faded over time. After the introduction of the new lapis lazuli pigment, Mary's rags-to-riches makeover became permanent. It was named Ultramarine, from Latin beyond the sea, indicating the place where the stone for its production came from. Meanwhile, in distant Mesoamerica, the Maya civilization developed its own blue pigment, Maya blue. 
Unlike ultramarine, its color wasn't derived from a mineral, but from the organic indigo dye, which the Mayans mix with clay. Derived from the plant indigofera, indigo has been used since prehistoric times. The world's oldest cloth dyed with it dates from 4000 BC and was found in Huaca Puerta, a pre-ceramic settlement in Peru. Despite being based on a dye, Maya blue proved remarkably durable. It was widely used even after the arrival of the Europeans, most notably in a copy of the Florentine Codex, an ethnographic manuscript about the colonies of New Spain by the Franciscan missionary Bernardino de Sahagún. Alas, like most of the indigenous Mesoamerican heritage, the technology for its production was gradually lost. In the 15th century, Tuscan painter Cennino Cennini wrote down the first surviving recipe for ultramarine in his work Il Libro dell'Arte. The glorious, lovely, and absolutely perfect pigment beyond all the pigments was made from powdered lapis lazuli, kneaded with mastic, colophony, and beeswax. The mix was then treated with lye to remove any impurities. Virgin Mary's monopoly on blue dress was undermined when Renaissance artists and their patrons turned for inspiration to Greco-Roman mythology and the natural world. In 1520, Titian not only dressed Bacchus and Ariadne in ultramarine, he painted the sky in the background with it. In 1665, Johannes Vermeer went even further and used the pigment for a turban, worn by a mere mortal in his painting Girl with a Pearl Earring. Despite its secularization, ultramarine remained expensive. The person who would finally bring the blue collar to the masses won't be a painter but an alchemist. Johann Konrad Dippel was born at Castle Frankenstein in the Landgraviate of Hesse-Darmstadt, 18 years after Vermeer painted his turbaned girl. He obtained a master's degree in theology from the University of Gießen at the age of 20. Dippel lived in a time when science and spirituality still felt comfortable in each other's company. The rigid principles of rationalism had yet to change the way we think about the natural world. After he spent his early years in heated theological disputes with his colleagues, Dippel turned to alchemy, the progenitor of modern chemistry, and joined a long list of natural philosophers like Isaac Newton, who experimented with transmutation, searching for a mysterious substance that could turn cheap metals into gold. Eventually, Dippel branched out into another, more realistic study, the synthesis of a medicine that could cure all diseases. The result was a foul-smelling, tar-like substance he called animal oil, produced from the destructive distillation of blood. In the early 18th century, the balance of power in Germany shifted in favor of Brandenburg, Prussia. The small, disjointed state, a personal union between an imperial realm and a duchy vassal to the Polish king, challenged the political leadership of the Austrian Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire. Its ruler, Frederick III of Hohenzollern, had even bigger plans. Through a series of reforms, he elevated himself into a king as Frederick I and solidified his lands into the Kingdom of Prussia. Its capital, Berlin, was the place to be for ambitious scientists. 
invited by a court official, Dippel moved to Berlin in late 1704, along with other alchemists like Friedrich Böttger and Domenico Caetano. Böttger would play an essential role in the invention of European porcelain, while Caetano would be hanged by Frederick I for repeatedly failing to deliver on a promise to produce gold by transmutation. Unsubstantial claims were dangerous when the reputation of the monarch was at stake, but Dippel's universal medicine somehow escaped rigorous scrutiny. According to German chemist Georg Ernst Stahl, during his Berlin residence, Dippel shared his lab with painter-maker Johann Diesbach, who was trying to produce red pigment by boiling cochineal insects with potash, ferrous sulfate, and alum. By mistake, Diesbach used potash contaminated with potassium ferricyanide, a leftover from Dippel's animal oil distillation. When he added it to his chemicals too, he found out that the resulting pigment turned blue. News of the invention, initially known as Ceruleus berolinensis, Berlin Blue, but later renamed to Ceruleus borussicus, Prussian Blue, appeared for the first time in a publication of the Royal Prussian Society of Sciences from 1710. Dippel was briefly imprisoned in 1707 for attacking the Swedish Lutheran Church in his writings. After his release, he relocated to the Netherlands. The first confirmed use of Prussian blue in a painting dates from 1709, when Dutch artist Pieter van der Weff used it for his artwork, The Entombment of Christ. By 1724, the news reached London, where naturalist John Woodward described the synthesis in a publication for the Royal Society. The pigment, much more affordable and durable than ultramarine, quickly gained popularity all over Europe. Its production method was constantly improved, and it soon found an additional application as a textile dye. In 1842, John Herschel used Prussian blue to invent blueprint copying, a method for reproducing technical drawings that would prove essential until the introduction of modern photocopiers. Last but not least, Prussian blue became an effective medicine against radioactive poisoning. One might imagine this would have been a consolation for Dippel, whose animal oil not only failed as a universal medicine, but was used as a chemical weapon by the Nazis during their campaigns in the Sahara Desert. As Prussian blue rose in popularity, ultramarine underwent a revival. In the early 19th century, chemists Jean-Baptiste Guimet and Christian Gmelin devised methods for its artificial synthesis that finally put an end to Europe's dependency on Afghan lapis lazuli and made it affordable to everyone. French artist Yves Klein, one of the founders of the Nouveau Realisme movement, became so obsessed with ultramarine he attempted to patent his own brand. The so-called International Klein Blue, a mix of synthetic ultramarine and polyvinyl acetate, is valued by art snobs as much as lapis lazuli was valued by the Egyptian pharaohs. The only difference is that today, the rest of us can have nice blue things too. A Brief History of the Color Blue was written by Janko Svetkov and published on alphadesigner.com on June the 13th of 2020. The audio recording was produced and narrated by Emiliano Gion.